Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to those uh, watching online as well. Um, as Frank said, my name is Tyler, and I get the privilege of kind of finishing out our series on Advent. Uh, if you've been tracking with us the past three weeks and now this fourth Sunday, uh, we have been going through what we do every time during this year, uh, and it's the kind of on the traditional church calendar, the season of Advent, which is a time for us to step back and reflect on what it would have been like to wait for the Christ to come, and then also now as we, uh, where we are in the plan of salvation, wait for Christ's second coming to one day uh, when he returns. And so, like we do every year, uh, we reflected on these four themes of Advent, and it started with uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving when Trent spoke on hope, and he said that, you know, if uh, God has accomplished for us in Christ what we could never have accomplished on our own, and so that gives us, uh, that allows us to have hope. And then the next week, Jared, our student pastor, came and he spoke on peace. And he said, you know, this, this passage that God has so ordered what he's doing in the world that he has prophesied hundreds of years before it actually happened down to the detail that the Christ would come from this tiny little town of Bethlehem. And if God cared about the smallest details like that, then we can be uh, sure that we have peace in how he will act on our behalf. And then last week... Uh, Trent, for our third Sunday, spoke on joy and said the gospel, because of what God has done to redeem us in Christ, has turned our shame into joy. And all of that culminates this week on our fourth Sunday on the theme of love. And what that means for us in Advent, as we consider what God is doing, what we consider the Christmas season to be, uh, that we can see God's love for us nowhere more clearly than when Christ came in the Incarnation and was born in Bethlehem. Uh, as an expression of God's love for us as he works to save us. Uh, so we'll continue this week in Micah chapter 7. Uh, you may have that marked if you've been with us in the past couple of weeks. If you don't, I'd invite you to go ahead and turn there. It's a small book, maybe a little hard to find. It's about halfway between Daniel and Matthew, if that helps you a little bit. Um, but as you're turning there, you know, we've gone through these four weeks, and we've looked at very specific passages in Micah that calls to mind these different themes of Advent uh, but really the whole book, if you go read it, it has a, a very definite structure and kind of rhythm to it where the prophet Micah uh, comes and he, gives, he issues a warning and he issues accusations against the people of Israel because they are failing to be faithful to the covenant that God has called them to. But each time he gives them this warning and says, that God uh, has this against you because of how you're acting, each time he does that, he follows it up with saying, hey, but, but on the other end of this uh, judgment and this destruction that's coming, of these difficult days ahead, there is hope for restoration. There's hope for uh, that God is not going to be done. He's going to show his mercy and his compassion to us again and bring us back and restore us. And it starts right at chapter 1. I mean, really, verse 1, he goes, Hi, I'm Micah. And verse 2 is, we're about to have a really bad day. Uh, he just starts going and just launches into, even before he says why God is angry with him, he says God is coming in judgment against us. And then in chapter 2, he actually gets to why God is angry. And he says, we were called back in when God gave his covenant to us at Sinai in the books of the law, uh, Genesis, especially Exodus and Leviticus, we were called to be different. We were called to live differently and worship differently. And specifically, the, the kind of sins he highlights is he says that our rich and our powerful have used their power and their wealth to oppress the weak and the helpless. 
And not only that, not only of the strong oppress the weak, which is against the covenant, the prophets of God that were supposed to call the people to repent, supposed to call them to live the way that God had laid out for them to live, these prophets had sold out and they were more than happy to issue you a, a, a word of blessing or a word of the protection of the God if you would just give them a little kickback. If you would pay them, they would pronounce God's blessing on your life. And so Micah is looking around at society and saying, God is not going to let this stand. God is going to act in judgment over us. But again, on the back side of this, that's not the final word. There is hope for restoration on the back side. And this plays out three times. There's judgment, there's accusations, there's warnings, there's judgment, but then there's hope. There's judgment and then hope. Judgment and then hope. And then here at the end of chapter 7, uh, Micah kind of steps back. We're going to look at 18 through 20. And he's just kind of finished his last pronunciation of hope and restoration. And these three verses almost feel like he steps back and looks at this whole pattern and considers, man, we have blown it so many times. We've been so unfaithful to what God has called us to do. Why would God continue to act this way? Why would he continue to show us this mercy? And he asks in amazement almost, what kind of God is it that would do such a thing? So let's read uh, the word of the Lord, Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. He says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And so as Micah kind of closes out his uh, prophecy as he closes out what he's telling the people of Israel, what God has given them, given him to say, he sees the fact that despite all their unfaithfulness, despite the second chances and the, the people that God has sent them to repent, to tell them to repent, and they've continued to rebel, um, despite their unworthiness of God to show them his favor, God still promises to once again set aside their transgression and show mercy to this wayward people. And this spurs in him to ask this rhetorical question that this passage starts off with, which says, who is a God like you? And of course, the answer to this is, there's no one. There is no God that acts in such a way. There's no God that puts so much grace, so much uh, compassion, so much mercy to a people that continue to go their own way. And why would he do this? Why can Micah uh, know that God is going to act in such such a way when it's beyond all expectation? Well, there's two reasons that Micah kind of grounds his hope in, in this passage. He grounds it in the character of God, and he grounds it in the promises of God. First, let's look at the character of God. We see this, why would he do it? Micah, in verse 18, the second part of the verse, he says this, he says that God acts this way because he delights in steadfast love. What does that mean, that God delights in steadfast love? Well, Micah here is referencing uh, another passage of Scripture, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And there, God is speaking to Moses. He's revealing himself to Moses, and God discloses his own character to Moses. He says, this is who I am. This is what I am like. He says there, you read, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He continues in verse 7. He says, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. This is a passage that Old Testament authors come back to time and time again when they're speaking of the character of God because it's when God tells us who he is. He uses his own words to describe his character and his nature. 
And in it, he uses this word, this steadfast love, twice. He says he keeps steadfast love for thousands, and he abounds in steadfast love. And so what, again, does that mean? Uh, And one thing I think that's important to note is I think our English translations are really, really good. And so we can read them and know that these are very great uh, references to what the scriptures meant in their original language. But there are still challenges that come with any kind, any kind of translation. If you've ever studied a foreign language in school or just for self-enrichment, uh, or maybe you're traveling and so you learn something, you know this. You'll go and you'll find a word in that language you're trying to translate, and you go, I don't know, there's not a one-to-one correspondence in English. And so you're like, how do I render this thought because there's not something that just means the exact same thing? Uh, Sometimes what you see people do is they just bring over the original word into the English language, right? So if you've ever been in a situation where you had that thought, you're like, I've been in this exact position before. What do we call that? Deja vu. Look, you all speak French. Congratulations. Um, Another word, I don't know if anyone would know this one. You've probably heard it, but there's a, a word that we've borrowed from German that if you find yourself taking pleasure in the misery and misfortune of another, it's schadenfreuden. You know, sounds very German, doesn't it? Uh, we don't have a word for that in English, so if we have that to describe that emotion, we just use the German word sometimes. And that's here a word that there's no specific English word that means the same thing that this Hebrew word does. The Hebrew word is kesed. And so you'll find in English translations, if you read, uh, we read the ESV, uh, you may have an NIV or a uh, RSV or so many of the others, and a lot of times they'll render it a little bit differently. You see here, steadfast love, uh, other places say unfailing love, loyal love, faithful love, uh, even loving kindness. They're trying to convey what the author here and what God said, what does this word mean in the original language? Uh, really, if you go back, it's got connotations of loyalty. It's got connotations of generosity, all wrapped up in this context of deep affection for another uh, that leads to action. It's not just an emotion, but it's an emotion that gives birth to action. One Hebrew scholar said this, Kesed is the kind of love someone demonstrates when they are keeping a promise and when their desire to be loyal to their promise motivates them to go above and beyond more than what you would expect. So I think kind of the the mental image that came to mind as I was thinking through this is a couple that's been married for 50 plus years. You know, one of the spouses falls ill and is no longer able to care for themselves. And so that other spouse gives themselves over to the care for their beloved. They spend their time to clean, to bathe, to feed that spouse because that spouse can no longer do it on their own for themselves. And why would they do that? They're doing that out of this love for this person out of this long relationship, out of the love they have based on their marriage vows, that I am in this relationship for better or for worse. And that's what this means. This is how I love this person that can no longer care for themselves, is by caring for them and devoting myself to them. This is the type of idea that says God delights in steadfast love. That is the type of love God has for his people. Uh, In the New Testament, John, the Apostle John, says it simply in 1 John chapter 4. He says twice, God is love. This is the defining attribute of God's character, that he is love. There has never been a moment that God did not love, that God did not pour forth in love. Even before God acted to redeem us, even before God created the universe, God is love. So let's camp on this idea for just a minute because I think it's really important for how we relate to God and how we understand the love that God offers to us. Uh, One fundamental belief of Christianity is that God is the Trinity. And that's something we don't necessarily talk about a lot because when we start to, we get a headache and like our eye starts twitching because um, we have a hard time comprehending exactly what that is. Uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis 
once said that us trying to understand and comprehend what it means that God is uh, triune, that God is the Trinity, is like imagining uh, two stick figures on a piece of paper trying to figure out what it meant to be three-dimensional. He's like, we just wouldn't have the concept for that. And so we kind of maybe can get it, uh, but then it, it, we feel like we've got a grasp on it, and then it, it disappears on us all of a sudden. But the Christian confession simply, uh, what do we mean when we say, say that God is the Trinity? Is that God has always existed as one being, but three distinct persons within that being, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this has been eternity past. This has always been who God is. And that those persons have existed in a perfect relationship uh, with each other. Perfect unity, perfect love, perfect trust. And so what did God do before creating the universe, before anything else existed? God existed in a loving relationship within uh, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that this is important for kind of understanding why God created, because so many other faiths, especially uh, ancient faiths when Christianity and Judaism were going around, uh, argued that God created to fulfill something that he was lacking. God needed people to worship him. God needed people to love him. God needed people to serve him. But Christianity comes into that and says, no, God lacked nothing. God didn't need anything from creation, so why did he create? God creates in the same reason that when we have something that we're passionate about, something that we love, something that we enjoy deeply, our natural inclination is to invite others in because we want others to experience the joy that we found within this thing, this thing that we love. And so God's love within Godhead was so perfect that it overflowed to invite creation to enjoy God, to come in and experience this same love. This is why John, uh, in, sorry, Jesus in John 17, he's praying the high priestly prayer is what it's known as. This is the prayer for, that Jesus prays for us that come later and put our faith in Christ. And Jesus prays that we might see his glory that the Father has given him because the Father has loved him before the foundation of the world. And so that's the, the kind of the theology, but then how does that play itself out? What does that mean? Because good theology should always be something that works its way out in how we relate to God. Well, like I already mentioned, one thing that matters is that God did not lack in himself. And we're not trying to fulfill a need that God has. God has created us to enjoy him and to be in a relationship with him and to experience the joy that comes from that. This is why the uh, Westminster Catechism, which is a tool that uh, the, our Presbyterian friends specifically have used for a few hundred years to disciple people in Christ and to, to get to know the faith. Uh, the, it begins with asking, what is the chief end of man? And it says the chief end of man is to praise God and to enjoy him forever. That's why God created us, to enjoy a relationship with him. And then John says, or again, Jesus says in John 17, as he continues that prayer, Jesus prays that the love which the Father has loved him may be in us. So that's the amazing truth or amazing thing the Bible says is the same love that the Father has for the Son is the love that is offered to us through the Son. So we get to, are invited in to experience that same love, not a different love, not a lesser love, that same love that God has for the Son is offered to us. And another reason it matters is that if God was not triune, if God was not in the Trinity, um, then before there was creation, there was nothing for God to love. There was no one for God to love. And what that would mean is that God's love is not essential to his being because there was a time in which he did not love because he had nothing to love. And so when he created, that's when he began to love and pour forth in love. Okay, that's kind of a, an abstract idea. But the, the, the meat of it is if there was a moment when God began to love, then there could be a moment when God ceased to love and decided, I'm not going to love anymore. 
But what we find, and because of who our God is, God has always poured forth in love, and he cannot not love. This is why in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, uh, Jeremiah is talking about the type of love God has for his people. And he says, he loves his people with an everlasting love. There is no beginning. There is no end. Is God's love for his people is an eternal fact of the universe. And so what? Like, why does that matter? It's because if God has bestowed his steadfast love on me or on you in Christ, that that's secure no matter how unfaithful we may be. That there is nothing that we can do that removes that love from us. Because God is true. God's love depends not on our own performance, not on our own ability to live up to something, not on our own willingness or our own ability to love God back. God's love for us depends on his own character and his own nature. And so if we ever enter that moment when we think, man, can God actually love me after this, after I did this, after I messed up so badly, the answer is a resounding yes, because God's love for us is based on him, not on you. God's love is seen here. It is steadfast. There is nothing that can shake it, nothing that can move it. Uh, so then how, kind of shifting gears a little bit, how do we understand, because it's mentioned here, uh, God's anger in light of God's love? Uh, it's mentioned here a little bit, and it's mentioned, again, in, in that Exodus 34. And oftentimes, I think, in kind of our culture that we live in, we see these two things as incompatible. We may hear the argument that if God is really loving, if God is really kind and merciful, then he won't be angry. He won't actually judge, because God is love. He can't judge. He can't be angry. That's incompatible. Uh, but I think one thing that's important to to consider um, is that even though love and anger don't often coincide in our own mind, um, they're held as incompatible, that love and anger aren't actually incompatible emotions. Oftentimes, anger is actually the right and good response of love, right? And why is that? That's because we live in a broken world that has wickedness, that has sin, that has evil. And when we see something or someone that we love, abused, taken advantage of, when we see wickedness or evil perpetrated against that person, what does that bring up in our heart? It brings up anger. And that's not a bad thing, but our anger is complicated. Our anger uh, is difficult, right? Because we're fallible people. That's why the scripture says that uh, be angry, but do not sin in your anger. Um, Because so often, if I'm left to my own devices and I see a situation and I, I, anger comes up in me, even if it's a right response, my anger can easily, instead of wanting justice, it wants vengeance. Instead of wanting uh, to understand the full situation before I act, I see something and I react too quickly. And I don't really understand everything that was going on. Sometimes our anger often stems more from our kind of background, our past, our emotions versus the actual situation that's going on. We are uh, fallible judges with bias and incomplete knowledge. um, And our anger is not always holy and righteous. But that is not the case with God. God has perfect knowledge of every situation. He sees everything. He sees every motive, everything that occurs, and he understands what is going on. And he sees the wickedness, and Scripture says that he has anger when he sees wickedness and darkness in the world. And so often I think when people say, God can't really judge, what they're thinking is God won't judge me if God loves me. But if we step back from that and we look at the world that's going on, I think all of us know somewhere deep down that we need a God that is angry with the wickedness of this world. When we look at human trafficking, if you look at domestic or child abuse, if you look at even this week, um, Boko Haram kidnapped, I think, 330 uh, boys from their school. Like, we see these things, these are wicked, these are evil, these should not be. And if God is not 
angry that that occurs in this world, then God does not actually love the world. He stands back in apathy. But Scripture is ultimately so clear, even in this book, Micah, that the evil and the wickedness and the oppression that is perpetrated against those that were created in the image of God bring about his anger. And so we, kind of boiling it down, we may look and say, well, I haven't participated in some of those really egregious deeds. So what does that mean? Of course, God may be angry at kidnapping. God's angry at murder. God's angry at abuse. But what is it for me that hasn't done necessarily those things? Well, it's a, a much longer discussion that we could have. But in short, God created us, or God is a being that is naturally loving and uh, giving towards everything. And he created us to be the same, to love and to give. The way this works out is the commands to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But because of sin... Instead of doing that naturally, we've curved in on ourselves. And what we find is instead of being selfless, it's easier for us and we're naturally selfish. And instead of loving God and loving neighbor, I so often use God and use neighbor to prop myself up and try and use them to achieve my own ends. And the biblical story is very clear that God, uh, in his description of himself in Exodus 34, and highlighted in prophets like Micah, that he's not going to declare the innocent guilty. And he's going to see all of the sin, all of the wickedness, all of the evil in the world, and that demands an account. Every single deed does. And so God does not declare the innocent guilty. But we also see that because of his love, he's not going to give up on his promise to redeem and to restore. And so Micah says this consequence for the unfaithfulness is not the final. There is a consequence, but it's not the final note because of God's steadfast love that he will act to redeem his people. But how does that look? How does God work to do that so he can once also be just and give sin the, the uh, consequence that it deserves, but also redeem us out of that. Let's look in verses 19 through 20. There we read this. It says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea, and he will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. See, God will show compassion. God will bury sin and unfaithfulness. Why? Because of his faithfulness to to Jacob and his steadfast love to Abraham. Because he has put this promise on this people. That all the way back in Genesis, God calls Abraham and says, From you, from this one man, I will make a great nation from your descendants. And I will use that nation to bless all the peoples of the earth. And so he begins to do that. And the story of the Old Testament is the story of this one nation's unfaithfulness to God, but God's faithfulness to his promise to work and to do what he says he's going to do. He rescues them out of Egypt. He takes them to Sinai and he gives them the law. He takes them into the promised land. He sends judges to rescue them from when they're in danger from their enemies around them. He eventually establishes David in a covenant with him, saying you will always uh, have someone on the throne. Then he sends prophet after prophet, calling them to repent, to come back, to live according to the covenant that God has given them. And when they won't do that, he does, he does what he said he would do in the original covenant he gave them. He exiles them out of the promised land. But even in the midst of that darkness and difficulty, he raises up Esther, he raises up Daniel, he raises up protectors for his people to keep them secure. And he eventually gives them favor in the eyes of the people that have conquered them, that they're able to go back under Ezra and Nehemiah and rebuild Jerusalem. And through all of this, through every time that God sends a a person, an imperfect Savior, he sends somebody that rescues them from temporary uh, difficulty, temporary distress, God is preparing them for the time that he will send somebody that's not a temporary Savior, not an imperfect rescuer, 
but when he would come himself. That's why in Galatians chapter 4, it says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we may receive adoption as sons. See, these temporary saviors that come again and again in the Old Testament prepare them and prepare the world for the moment when God would send not an imperfect man that would come himself, that in the incarnation, God puts on flesh and dwells among us. Emmanuel, God with us. He's born in a manger in Bethlehem that night that Christ, although he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of of men. See, Christmas, this thing that we'll celebrate on Christmas Eve and then especially on uh, Friday, is the reminder of the love of God coming in the form of Jesus. That the love of God didn't remain aloof and far off, but it came tangibly in a person for us, for me and for you. But it doesn't just stop there, right? Christmas is the opening act in God's grand movement of redemption. That it wasn't enough for him to just come and to be born. But he came to live the life that we should have lived. He came to die the death that we deserved. Philippians continues and says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christmas is a sweet time, and it should be, of getting together with family, with friends, with eating way too much food, opening gifts, celebrating what God did in coming in the form of Jesus Christ. But the child in the manger, it's not just we, the child in the manger sat from that first night under the shadow of the cross. That he came to live and to die on our behalf. That God wasn't just going to wink at sin and act like it never happened. That he came, but Jesus came to make a way back for us to experience the love and the grace of God. He came to stand in our place. And this is why God is able to tread iniquities underfoot. Why he casts sins into the depths of the sea. It was because Jesus became sin on our behalf so that God could once be the just and the one who justifies. And so if we look to Christ in faith and he puts himself in our place where we might be covered with the righteousness of God. And so how do we respond to this? How does Christmas one remind us and then call us to do something? Well, one, if we've never put our faith in Christ, that's what is offered to us. Consider the love of God that is available to you through faith in Christ, the grace that God extends. Just like there's nothing that you can do, nothing that I can do to make up for my sinfulness, to make up for my uh, selfishness that I've released in this world that I've participated in, there's nothing that I could do or you could do to put yourself outside of the love of God, the steadfast love of God that's extended to you through Christ Jesus. All we have to do is call on him in faith. And then if we've done that, if we are in the household of faith and Christ has uh, redeemed us, then we need to understand that it's not just the love of God that's the invitation into faith. It's also the love of God that invites us to look more and more like Christ. And it's the power by the Holy Spirit that shapes us into who he is calling us to be. You know, the New Testament uh, has a lot of commands that are kind of uh, dualities. It says, put off the old self, put on the new. Or it says, die to this and be alive to Christ. Um, there's several kind of uh, framings like that, especially in Paul. What I do is I look at my life sometimes, and if I'm honest, I see a lot more of the things that I'm supposed to be dying to than the things that I'm supposed to be alive to. You know, I, I look and see God's called us to peace and patience and gentleness and self-control, and I'm, I'm lacking in those. So how do I begin to grow? How do I continue to pursue Christ in this? Well, in the early 1800s, there was a guy named Thomas Chalmers that uh, gave a sermon that was been really influential uh, 
because we still know it 200 years later. Um, but he said this. He, the sermon was about how people really change and how we grow in Christ-likeness. And he said, the way that God created us, the way that God wired our hearts, uh, to use his language, he says, the way that the heart is so constituted that there is something that the heart will naturally pursue. We, la- we all have those things that we latch onto and that we spend our lives chasing after. And he says, outside of Christ, this will be the things of this world, that there will be something in this world that it captures our heart's attention and affection, and that's what we pursue. And so there's two ways we can try to change this. He says the first way is to try and rationally uh, argue against it. So we can tell ourselves or someone can come and tell us and try and convince us that what we're pursuing isn't worth our time. It's not going to uh, give us what we truly desire. It's going to fail us, um, that it's not what we hope it will be. Uh, And often I think we find ourselves doing this when we've messed up, when we're in kind of that moment of shame and guilt that we've been in before and we're thinking, this is how it always works. I don't know why I continue to do this. Next time I want this is not worth my time. This is not, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do something differently. This is the last time I fall into this. But so often, a week, six weeks, six months later, we find ourselves right back in that place. That's what Chalmers says. He says we can try uh, intellectualize ourselves away from this, but it rarely works. It's like if you've ever watched a uh, parent of a teenager try and rationally and reasonably tell that teenager why their boyfriend or girlfriend's bad for them? Um, how often does that go well and in, in a positive result? Never. Never? Once in the history of the world, maybe. Um, it's, that's kind of what it is. We can't uh, rationalize ourselves away from what our heart is attached to. So how do we do this? How do we detach our heart from one and put it on another? It says there's a second way that actually produces a result. It says the only way you'll be able to dislodge the attention of your heart from one object and provide it uh, something else is to provide it with another more worthy of that attention. To change, for our hearts to actually change and pursue the things of God, we must behold something more worthy, more beautiful, more valuable than what it is currently set on. To quote him, he says this, the way that all old things are to be done away with and all things are to become new is not by exposing the worthlessness of the old things, but by addressing the mental eye to the worth and excellence of the new. The heart is so constituted that the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. It says that lasting transformation in our lives and our hearts comes from comparing what we are offered in the love of God extended to us in Christ with the things of this world. And by putting them up next to each other and comparing them, we see the worthlessness, the transitoriness, the flimsiness of all the things that this offers in light of what God has offered us in salvation through Christ. It's like we have an auto ticket that's worth $1,000. is immensely valuable to us unless we have the opportunity to trade that for the jackpot. We'd gladly part with it. Jesus said it like this. He says the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field that when somebody finds it, he goes and gladly sells all that he owns so that he can purchase the field and obtain the treasure. All of our possessions suddenly don't, we don't value them anymore because we found something that's infinitely more valuable. That's why Paul can in one of his letters list his resume? He can say, man, this is all the things in my life that society would say, you have made it. Like, you have lived an amazing life. You are worthy of esteem and value. And he lists them out, and then he says this. He says, whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss for the surpassing knowledge or surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Comparing the things that he had that he put so much esteem in before he came to Christ and then knowing the value of Christ changed everything. Illustrating it a different way. 
uh, probably, I would argue, that the most influential work ever written in English was Romeo and Juliet. If it's not the most, it's on the very short list, right? So much so that we all know roughly the play. Even if we haven't read it since high school, even if we never read it, never saw any movies or play adaptations, we kind of know things about this play because they're so uh, embedded in our culture, right? Like we know the main characters, Romeo and Juliet. If you can't at least get that one, there's really no helping you. Um, but then even more than that, we kind of know the, the plot, right? We know it's two star-crossed lovers that uh, fall for each other, but they're from rival families, and so it's kind of doomed from the start. Uh, if you're given long enough to think, or if you just hear them, you probably know that the families are the Montagues and the Capulets. Um, we just know these things. We can even probably, even if we can't call them to mind, we know lines from this play. Even again, if you haven't read it or haven't read it in 50 years, uh, you know, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Uh, a rose under any other name is still such smells as sweet. Um, or I'll kind of bongle, bang, uh, mangle that one, but something close to that. You know, we just hear these things and like, okay, these are lines from this play. Uh, we know it. It's it got this part in our culture that we're familiar with it. But one thing almost no one remembers is the name of the woman that Romeo loves that's other than Juliet. Most of us probably don't even remember that he loves somebody other than Juliet when the play starts. But really that sets up the entire play because it opens and Romeo is love sick. He's lovesick because this woman, Rosalind, does not return his affections. And if Rosalind does not love him back, nothing in life is worth living. There's no color. There's no joy. There's nothing that's worth doing. It's because Rosalind does not return his affections. And so it sets up the play because his friend is like, man, Romeo, you're a bummer to be around. Like, uh, let's go to a party and find somebody else that will take your affection uh, or your eye off of Romeo. And Romeo says, that can't happen. There is no one that is better, no one that is more worthy, no one that is more beautiful than the great Rosalind. And he goes to this party uh, just because he knows she's going to be there and he wants to lay his eyes on her and just see her from a distance. But what happens is he goes, and the moment Juliet walks into the room, everything changes for him. He sees her and sees that she's more beautiful, more valuable, more worthy. And suddenly the heart that was set on Rosalind above all else doesn't even think about her. We don't even know her name anymore. She is part of that play, but we, unless we read it, we don't consider her. We know Juliet because Romeo saw her and saw her value. And immediately his heart was transformed to pursue this woman. That is what the love of God is for us. That if we can actually see it and comprehend it, through the eye of the Holy Spirit, it will obliterate the other affections of our heart. It is the expulsive power of a new affection when we contemplate the value of what Christ has done for us in his love that is in coming, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so this Christmas season, may that be something that we make time for. May we consider the love of God that is offered to us through the coming of Christ, and may that Give us the energy and the power under the Spirit to pursue hard after God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have acted to redeem, that uh, despite the unworthiness of the people of Israel, despite uh, our own unworthiness, that we fall short so often that um, our faithfulness is lacking, that you are faithful not because of us, but because of your own character because of your own promises to us that you will act to redeem, that you will act to save. Uh, may that be what motivates us to pursue, not a sense of guilt, not a sense of shame, not a sense of obligation, but a true understanding that you are more worthy, you are more valuable, uh, you are more beautiful than anything of this world.
And in you, we will find rest and we will find fulfillment and we will find the contentment because uh, our hearts were made to find their rest in you.